It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is your last chance. That's President Donald Trump's message for Republican lawmakers on repealing and replacing Obamacare. Trump tweeted it this morning. The U.S. Senate will move forward with a key vote this week on a Republican health bill, but it's a mystery what exactly they'll vote on. One option may be a repeal without immediate replacement. It is something Republican Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado has supported in the past. CPR's Vic Vela asked him if he'd vote for a pure repeal now. I don't know that that's something that's going to be coming up, and I don't want to speculate about how I would vote on a bill that we don't know if it's going to be there or not. What I know we need to work on is a way to find relief for people who are suffering under the Affordable Care Act, and that's what I'm committed to do. Well, Senator McConnell has suggested that he may bring that bill forward. You voted for full repeal in the House and in the Senate. Is there a difference, really, between now and then? Well, again, I don't know if that's what we're going to be voting on. and I don't want to speculate what may or may not come up for a vote. Uh, I do think we have to replace the Affordable Care Act with something that is going to increase the quality of care, decrease the cost of care. Uh, and I think that's what we ought to focus on. And uh, right now it is unclear what, uh, what that would be. Uh, negotiations continue, and I look forward to being a part of those negotiations to make uh, a better bill uh, emerge from all of this. Do you still support the repeal of Obamacare? I think we need to repeal and replace Obamacare, and I will continue to support that effort. Uh, And I think we should continue working in a bipartisan fashion. I hope we can get uh, Democrat support for an idea because too many people are being hurt by higher insurance costs. And in Colorado alone, you can see that uh, the reports will just last week alone saying that our insurance premiums are going to rise by an expected 27 percent. Uh, on average, uh, next year. Senator, can you blame people who may question the sincerity of Republicans around repealing Obamacare, that it's easy to vote for a repeal when Obama's president because he'll veto it anyway, but it's a whole other thing when you vote on something that can actually become law and a massive program ends? Well, I think people are frustrated by what they were promised uh, would happen under the Affordable Care Act, and that's why we have to get our work done. Uh, When the Affordable Care Act passed, it was promised that it would lower people's insurance by $2,500 per family. That turned out not to be true, and they were promised you could keep your doctors if you liked your doctor. Hundreds of thousands of people lost the doctors they were promised they could keep. And so uh, I think they're tired of that broken promise of Obamacare, and that's why we have to make sure that we put something in place that drives down that cost uh, of insurance. Speaking of promises, Republicans promised to repeal Obamacare. Would that be a failure on the part of Republicans if this doesn't get done? Well, I think uh, hopefully we will come up with an agreement where uh, we can have a a repeal uh, and something in its place. But no matter what happens, this conversation is going to continue as long as the Affordable Care Act continues to hurt the people of America. And uh, Because if there is a failure, uh, those insurance premiums in Colorado and across the country will continue to rise until something is done. President Trump has said the best thing to do right now is to let Obamacare fail. Do you agree with him? You know, I, I really do think we need to, to work on a replacement, and uh, that, that's what, what I've said, and I hope that that's what we can achieve uh, in the next uh, week, uh, and uh, if, if not, uh, in the next weeks to come. But I do think we need to have something in place that provides relief to the American people, uh, and that's what I'll continue to fight for. Has the president provided enough leadership on health care? Uh, I thought the meeting that we had at the White House last week was a productive meeting, uh, and uh, again, uh, we've got to, to get, our, get our jobs done. Uh, in Congress. That's the House and the Senate. I hope both sides of the aisle are engaged in this conversation. Uh, And uh, that's the most important thing, not trying to point fingers about who is or who isn't providing leadership. Uh, Senator, the recent Republican health care effort that failed to get off the ground in the Senate would have made 
sweeping changes to Medicaid. Medicaid right now covers more than 70 million people. And a lot of Republican governors have pushed back against cuts to the program. Do you believe cutting Medicaid's population is the right way to bring improvements to Obamacare? Well, I think what we've tried to do in Medicaid and what I've talked about is making sure that we make Medicaid sustainable. I was very concerned when the Medicaid expansion occurred that it was going to be unsustainable, either at the federal level or at the state level. Uh, and uh, I'm very concerned that it's that, that instability means that it may not be there as much for the people who truly need it. Uh, when the uh, able-bodied adults uh, were allowed into Medicaid uh, expansion, it put pressure on the sustainability of that program. So what I hope we can do is give the states greater flexibility in managing their program, greater tools. I'm waiting for Seema Verma, the head of HHS, excuse me, the head of Medicaid at HHS, to provide me with some numbers and some options that they are working on at HHS that could provide alternatives for Colorado. And I just think it's important that we we recognize we have to make sure that this is sustainable because in 10 or 20 years, if the money is not there, then what happens to those people truly in need? Uh, and uh, we got to make sure the safety net continues. Well, Senator, a lot of those people in need who benefited from the expansion are in rural Colorado. Actually, rural Colorado counts for nine of the top 10 counties that saw numbers increase under the expansion. You're from rural Colorado. You're from Yuma. A lot of folks who voted for you uh, are now on Medicaid because of the expansion. Do you worry that decreasing the expansion will have detrimental effects in rural areas? Well, look, I think we ought to be talking about how we're getting people into better paying jobs as well. Instead of just trying to say that, well, gosh, I wish we could put everybody into Medicaid. Uh, what I think we ought to do is say, what, what, what we ought to do is to say, how do we get better paying jobs, jobs with benefits, jobs with opportunities to have better health care than we have today? Then we can give the states greater flexibility on how to maintain and manage a Medicaid program that is sustainable to help those people who are truly in need. Whether that's rural Colorado or urban Colorado, we shouldn't be just saying, hey, Let's make sure we fit as many people into Medicaid as possible when there are other alternatives and better options for care available. Senator, you have a lot of people right here in Colorado who want to talk to you about health care. How are you hearing from people right now? We've held over 400 meetings. Uh, my office has. I have with a constituent from across Colorado. We've held teletown halls where we've reached out to over 50,000 people uh, to hear their concerns about health care and issues facing them directly. Uh, we continue to meet with people, and uh, our offices across the state are uh, busy taking calls and, and uh, taking the opinions of Coloradans across the four corners of our state, and that's what I will continue to do. Do you intend to hold a uh, in-person town hall anytime soon? Uh, I've held over 100 town halls in the time I've been in Congress, and uh, we've held uh, teletown halls where we've heard from 50,000 people. Uh, we've held uh, meetings with them, employees around uh, the state of Colorado, and we'll continue to do that just as we continue to take over 400 meetings on health care. Senator, if you were going to design a bill that fix what you're, you're saying isn't working on Obamacare, what does that system look like? Well, I think everybody admits that the, the individual insurance market has collapsed under the Affordable Care Act. And so we have to make sure that the individual insurance markets are stabilized. We need to make sure that we craft a bill that creates that stable market. Things like a long-term stability fund have been part of that. Uh, risk pools are part of those conversations, uh, and then giving states greater flexibility in how they manage their insurance programs, insurance across state lines, association health plans, those are part of it. I, I would like to see us protect pre-existing conditions, and so we can structure a bill that drives down the cost of insurance while protecting pre-existing conditions. I think that's got to be a part of it. I've worked on efforts to help uh, 
change language as it relates to children with disability. And I think we've made some good progress there and we'll continue to. Well, Senator, how do you get to 50 votes when you have so many, you have moderates, you have conservatives uh, in your own party who can't agree uh, and you guys have the majority. How do you get there when uh, you say one thing that you'd like to see in a bill and another Republican senator says something totally different? Uh, I think you've just described the difficulties of the legislative process, and that's why negotiations continue. But at the end of the day, we have to have a bill that can find that support. And uh, that's why at this moment, those negotiations do continue, because I don't think those votes are there yet. Okay. On North Korea, Senator, you have talked about what's happening on the Korean Peninsula as a grave threat to the safety of the United States. Can you talk about what you mean? North Korea, on July 4th, launched a intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time based on the time it was in the air and the trajectory. Uh, we believe that it could reach the states of Hawaii and Alaska. That means that these states are now in the nuclear shadow of North Korea. We know they have uh, nuclear warheads. We know they're developing more. And now the question is, do they have the capacity then to actually deliver that nuclear warhead to the United States homeland? And uh, this is a very dangerous situation with a madman in Pyongyang who uh, has said that he would use these weapons on the United States. Uh, it's creating an unstable situation in the uh, entire peninsula, South Korea and our regional allies like Japan, that could lead to a greater arms race. And so uh, our goal has to be peaceful denuclearization of North Korea. Uh, and we have to put pressure on not only North Korea, but China to stand up to them and help us in this effort. Well, and actually, you've been critical of the Trump administration for not being strong enough on China to help with North Korea. What do you think the administration should do here? I have criticized the administration for not doing enough. Uh, I was uh, pleased that last week when they did announce some sanctions on a financial institution and other businesses in China. Uh, so I was pleased the administration is starting to take those steps. It does sound like they are starting to ratchet up the pressure on North Korea. But more has to be done. China controls 90% of North Korea's economy. There's a handful of companies that control 30% of North Korea's economy. If they were serious about helping denuclearize North Korea, they would step up and show us how they're willing to help. Senator, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you talking. Hey, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Colorado's Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. He spoke Friday with my colleague Vic Vela. You can hear our interview about health care with his Democratic colleague Michael Bennett at CPRnews.org. Gardner talked about the threat of a nuclear North Korea. Nuclear winter describes the nightmarish climate that would follow nuclear war. The concept dates back to the early 1980s, and it came from a team of scientists that included Carl Sagan. Sagan produced a short film about life beyond the initial fallout. Beneath the clouds, virtually all domesticated and wild sources of food would be destroyed. Most of the human survivors would starve to death. The extinction of the human species would be a real possibility. Well, more than three decades later, a member of that initial team is back at it. CU Boulder atmospheric scientist Brian Toon is updating predictions of what a nuclear war would mean for humanity with some more sophisticated computing. And he hopes to capture the attention of the world's most powerful people, from Washington, D.C. to Pyongyang, Islamabad to Moscow. And Brian, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Also with us is Cheryl Harrison, an oceanographer on this project. She'll look at how nuclear winter would play out in the sea, which is pretty important for our food supply. And a welcome to the show. Thank you. Brian, your research coincides, I'll say, with a big development at the United Nations, the first treaty imposing a total ban on nuclear weapons. 122 nations voted for it. They are all non-nuclear, we should say. The nuclear powers, including the U.S., boycotted the negotiations. So with that as a backdrop, Brian, uh, briefly remind us what nuclear winter is. When a nuclear weapon explodes, it releases a huge amount of energy, which, of course, knocks buildings down, releases radioactivity, which is, of course, hazardous to people. And those are the things people mostly think about. But the real damage from nuclear weapons really comes from the fires they start. We know from Hiroshima and Nagasaki that there were firestorms that basically burned the entire cities to the ground. Uh, In that case, more than a thousand times as much energy was released in the firestorm than in the bomb blast. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, when you have a fire, you release a lot of smoke. And uh, eventually it gets into the stratosphere. And because it never rains, the smoke can stay there for decades Uh, And because it absorbs the sunlight, surface temperatures drop. For a war between Russia and the United States, looking at individual places like Iowa, for example, which is a central grain-growing region in the United States, we found that temperatures in the summer were dropping 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Can Can I add, we expect that to happen globally, so it wouldn't just affect the United States, it would affect everyone on the planet. Because in the stratosphere, that dust would spread everywhere and block out light for everyone. So the idea is, if there is even an isolated nuclear conflict, I don't know, between India and Pakistan, that doesn't just affect India and Pakistan. That becomes everybody's problem. Exactly. What would you you picture for the oceans, Cheryl? First, I want to add that another effect of putting a bunch of smoke in the stratosphere is that it absorbs the sunlight and it heats up that area. That destroys the ozone layer globally. So we're freezing, but we're sunburned. And both of those things would affect plankton in the ocean. And plankton's really important because it's the base of the food chain. And it makes half of the oxygen. (laughs) So we like fish and we like to breathe. So um, if you turn out the lights, of course, photosynthesizers can't grow. If you cool the surface of the ocean where they have to be because they need light, they also slow down their growth. There's also going to be effects to the ocean chemistry, and that's one of the things we're really interested in and hasn't been studied before. Cheryl, I want to pick up on something I heard. You you had a, a moment of what sounded like to me nervous laughter when you talked about the importance of the ocean. Is this really awkward work to talk yeah. about with your friends? Yeah, so my, my husband has put a moratorium that I get to talk about this on Thursday, <laughs> Nuclear Thursday, we call it. <laughs> I mean, I got into this modeling, um, asteroid impacts, specifically the one that killed the dinosaurs. And it turns out it's the same modeling framework as a nuclear war, which kind of gives you an idea of um, asteroids as things that cause mass extinction and nuclear bombs, the potential there. Um, So asteroids and and nuclear weapons have something in common, I guess. They have a lot in common. You know, I went into this, I just thought, no one's ever going to do this. This is so terrible from a rational perspective. No one would wage nuclear war. And then after we met with a bunch of experts on nuclear weapons and nuclear war, they really convinced me that, no, there's a lot of people who really believe 
there are times when nuclear war is warranted. That is frightening. It's really frightening. Because you met with with diplomats, with uh, military folks uh, to get a a picture of the sort of global risks here. And I want to go back to that U.N. decision, which, again, the nuclear powers did not sign on to, Brian. But do you think that that treaty reduces the risk of of nuclear war and thus nuclear winter? Does it make your your work less relevant, Um, which I suppose would be a good thing? I would love it if our work was irrelevant, but, uh, you know, these studies first developed in the 1980s, and at that time there were 70,000 weapons on the planet. Uh, So now instead of 70,000 weapons on the planet, we have 15, which I think was caused by these early discoveries of nuclear winter and the potential destruction of human civilization. 15,000, of course, 15,000 weapons. 15,000 is still a lot. At any rate, it's not just the United States or Russia anymore. Yeah. You know, it's India and Pakistan, North Korea, Israel, um, and who knows who else is going to develop nuclear weapons if we don't put an end to it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking to two researchers who are on a rather dark but pretty important path, and that is to update the science around what nuclear winter would look like. What would the effects be of a nuclear war on the climate, on the oceans, on our ability to grow food. These two scientists, Brian Toon and Cheryl Harrison, are at CU Boulder. And I do want to lay out clearly that this work is not triggered by the Trump administration, which has talked about uh, increasing the, the nuclear stockpile and updating it. This project dates before then, doesn't it? Oh, we've been working on this through multiple administrations, starting with Ronald Reagan, both of the Bushes, uh, the Clintons, Obama, and now Trump. Brian, I have a question for you about funding this work. So I want to note that um, backing it now is the Open Philanthropy Project, which is largely funded by a co-founder of Facebook, Dustin Moskovitz, and his wife, Carrie Tuna. Uh, but, But landing funding for this type of research particularly government funding, I understand, is is a tough nut to crack, huh? Yeah, this is uh, something that's historically odd. We've attempted over and over again to get the National Academy to do another study of this, which they have failed to do. Uh, we have approached uh, the Department of Defense. You know, the, We also approached Homeland Security and said, well, if India and Pakistan have a war, it could cause starvation in the U.S. Don't you think you should study that? And they said, no, that's not our job. So I think that's part of the answer. It's not our job to study this. Uh, so there's a lot of that going on. And there may be other aspects of this. There's uh, Obama gave the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy $300 billion over 10 years to rejuvenate and enhance the U.S. nuclear arsenals. And the argument there is that the arsenal can serve as a deterrent against nuclear war, and that if weapons age and aren't responsive, that that could embolden new nuclear powers, like you've mentioned, North Korea among them. You know, we have this myth of deterrence. You know, some people argue has prevented us from having a war, and other people say that's just an illusion and uh, we've been lucky. Whatever that end of that debate is, everyone on both sides of that debate want these weapons to never be used. We're buying missiles to put in the ground 
that will never be used. They can't be used. You can't use them for a limited conflict, uh, and you certainly don't want to get nuclear war and use them. Brian, it sounds to me like you come at this with a pretty specific agenda, which is nuclear war is bad, and even nuclear weapons in and of themselves are bad. Do you think that's true? No, this is a science problem. So what's what's the role of science in society? Why do we have scientists? You know, so some scientists are making practical things like cell phones and uh, televisions, but a lot of scientists are doing things where we're trying to provide information to society to prevent some disaster, like an engineer might go look at a dam. You know, if the dam looks like it's about to fail, it's their job to go tell the dam makers and the local politicians they better fix it. So from my point of view, a nuclear winter is a hazard that we face, uh, and I'm trying to tell people, especially politicians, that they need to do something about this. We're scientists, and we want to know how things work and what the impacts are, but I do think there is a really important message to give to people. This is really dangerous, and the collateral damage is astounding. Like, I'm astounded. I just started thinking about this, and it makes sense to me that this should be something as humans we make illegal like we've made chemical weapons illegal just because the risk to civilians, the risk to people far away is really high. And for me, um, an add-on to that is also having a window into the past and perhaps the future in terms of asteroid impacts, volcanic impacts. We have climate anomalies like the year without a summer was caused by a volcanic eruption that's much smaller than these nuclear war scenarios that caused riots and famine. I had to Google this. It was in 1816, a three-year period of mm-hmm. severe climate deterioration because of the eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. I'd like to wrap up with a question about the overall threat and whether you think it has fallen off people's radar more than perhaps it should. One thing I got out of our meeting last week with these experts in nuclear war is that explicitly, to their personal knowledge, there are people in Washington and in other governments that sincerely believe that using nuclear weapons, there's a time and place that that would make sense. So I think it's really important to publicize what the impacts are. And I think these are important things for everyone on the planet to know about. And we have to, we have to get rid of these things. They're just terrible. Do you think that view could taint the research? No, we, we can separate that. I'm happier when I separate that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just great to go into science mode and think about it across broad timescales um, in the Earth's history. Brian, do you think we should be more mindful of nuclear war and nuclear winter? Absolutely. We uh, are at a time when the Cold War is starting back up. We have flashpoints in the world uh, with North Korea that could start a nuclear conflict. Also, we could be hacked. These nuclear bombs could potentially be hacked. That was one of our scenarios we came up with. And so you could have a rogue person who could hack into these weapons and start a worldwide nuclear war that could kill us all. Let's uh, wrap things up on that rosy note. Thank you both (laughs) for being with us. 
From Boulder, atmospheric scientist Brian Toon and oceanographer Cheryl Harrison, their work will modernize the concept of nuclear winter. And their colleagues seem to agree nuclear war is more possible. The doomsday clock run by atmospheric scientists moved 30 seconds closer to midnight this year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's possible to have a stunning flower garden in Colorado without using lots of water. Scientists at the Denver Botanic Gardens and CSU travel the world to find plants they think will do well in the arid west. They bring these plants back to Colorado and spend years, sometimes decades, getting them ready to sell to home gardeners and landscapers. Panayoti Kalaidis helped start this effort in the 1980s, and he's co-author of a new book called Pretty Tough Plants. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. You're credited with a revolution in Western gardening. What's the aesthetic that you have helped create? Well, there's lots of lots of us who have been involved in experimenting with new plants. But the real rationale, I think, has been that we realize that we have these droughts that occur pretty much on every couple of decades. We have two or three or four years. And during that time, traditional gardens really suffer. Lawns go brown and a lot of plants die. When you say traditional, you mean the gardens people might be accustomed to back east, that kind of maybe lush English-looking thing. Yeah, it's more or less what people established here because almost everybody who moved here moved from someplace else and uh, usually from wetter places. So they tried to recreate that. And uh, I I think that there was not a lot of thought that went into what, you know, it's kind of you grew your grandmother's favorite plant, your aunt. Aunt Joyce's favorite lilac. <laughs> and uh, I think what really happened was that in uh, the early 80s, we had kind of both Colorado State University and Denver Botanic Gardens were suddenly exploding with new plants that we were trying. And we found that some of them did much better than others. And they were generally plants from drier climates. And this led you really on a global search that has lasted now for decades. This effort is called Plant Select. It is a nonprofit and a joint venture between Colorado State University and the Botanic Gardens. And it sells plants that you develop uh, in order to fund the research and development then of, of more of this work. What's a plant you found out in the field somewhere outside of the U.S. that you've brought back and developed here in Colorado? I'd like you to, to take us on one of your adventures. Sure. Well, we have quite a, quite a number of plants that are in the program. Uh, some of the plants that are probably best known are the various kinds of uh, ice plants uh, from South Africa. Ice plants, if you look in books from 30 or 40 years ago, you won't find Delosperma in any garden book because we kind of invented it. And uh, I was very fortunate early in my career to be able to go to South Africa, and I collected with some people from the of the university in the Botanic Garden there. And one of the plants I brought back was called uh, Delosperma floribundum, and we made a selection of that. And it is an ice plant that uh, goes from seed to bloom very, very quickly, and it blooms all summer. And uh, it's become... Um, 
pretty much all over the world has been grown now. And I'm very proud of having done that. Where was this in South Africa? It was in a little, near a town called Springfontein, which was in uh, the, the plains. In fact, it was very much like being out on the Great Plains of Colorado. And in the distance, you had the Drakensberg Mountains, just like you have the Rockies here. So uh, it was very reminiscent. Uh, most of the places where we do our exploration in Central Asia, in South America, South Africa, are essentially the our sister climates. Our sister climates, and in that case, our sister topography, I guess. We have a photo of, of an ice plant at cprnews.org. Why is it called ice plant? Well, uh, the first ones that were cultivated, it's a huge family with uh, maybe even several thousand members. And the first ones cultivated have these crystals on their leaves that look like ice. And a few of the ones that we grow, like Cooperi, has those same little crystals, and they look like ice. So what is it? take, what is involved in bringing a plant back and then really making it ready for Colorado prime time? Well, we've found over the years that it's the average uh, period of time since from the time of collection or introduction to uh, the time of actually getting in the program is 19 years. 19 years? Yeah, it takes about 19 years. And the reason it takes so long is that uh, uh, people don't realize that plants that are in the garden center uh, they really have to be vetted for many reasons. They have to be tested for how they perform in pots because they'll be growing in a pot. They have to be grown, uh, seen how long they take to go from seed to bloom or cutting to bloom. So there's all these different protocols that we have to test. And then we have to make sure that the plant isn't going to be invasive or cause a problem. So we like to grow it in lots of different settings. Yeah, How do you test for that, whether something is going to take over when it's planted in Colorado? Well, that's part of the problem is that you don't necessarily know offhand. You have to kind of grow it for a while in different different kinds of ways. In fact, um, truly invasive plants have a few attributes that are pretty obvious. Uh, one is that they produce an enormous number of seeds that germinate and blow in the wind. So if your plant has bigger seeds that don't go so far and doesn't have a huge number, that's usually a sign that that won't be a problem. The other thing that invasives have is that their roots go like crazy. And so if you have a plant whose roots are going like crazy or who has little tiny seeds that blow around, you really got to watch it and make sure that you aren't introducing another weed. It's a good tip-off, you're saying. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about pretty tough plants. It's a new book that collects plants that have been discovered elsewhere, often outside the United States, that do well in Colorado because they're not terribly thirsty, and they do well in arid climates. And uh, Paniotti Calides from the Denver Botanic Gardens helped put this together. He's also uh, been involved for decades now with Plant Select, this program that hopscotches the globe in search of these things. Where else has this taken you? You've made reference, I think, to Asia. Well, uh, South Africa, like I said, is, is probably what I'm best known for. Uh, I have colleagues who have been doing quite a bit of work in South America. Uh, we don't have any plants in the program yet, but I think we will. But South America is uh, like a whole new arena, and we're working with the uh, Argentine government and have some agreements now. And we actually have three Argentines at the Botanic Gardens right now who are working and uh, helping us. And so uh, that's another arena, but the the largest arena is probably the Central Asia, the steppes of Asia, because we actually live in a steppe climate. I'm thinking of like Mongolia, maybe? Exactly. Okay. And uh, 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 I was very fortunate to go twice to uh, Kazakhstan and Mongolia with a colleague, Mike Bone, who's our curator of steppe collections. And that was almost um, eight or nine years ago. And we had two magical 
uh, visits, one to sort of see things in bloom and then to uh, collect seed. And quite a few of those plants are showing great promise. I want to say that we have a bunch of recommendations for plants that thrive in shade or that resist deer, all that require minimal watering at cprnews.org, along with photos as well. And the, the fact is, you don't have to sacrifice color for drought resistance. I think that's really the, what you have found over these years. When we take a, a page from our, our, our backyard, so to speak, if you think about the West, the West is really pretty dry. And even though we're known because of the exotic nature of our plants from Central Asia and Africa, half of our plants are actually Native American plants. And we are really trying to wake awake people to the the native landscape. And mm. so you don't we have, have to necessarily go far flung. Exactly. And so we've used our native landscape and many of our native plants from the, the West. We're particularly proud of those because many of those support pollinators. And that is a function that many of our plants, we, we really are seeking out to make sure that we uh, have a diversity of uh, uh, pollinators as well as, as plants because uh, our gardens really are connected to nature as a, as a whole. Give me one example of a native that you'd like to uh, raise the profile of. Well, that my I would be hard to pick. It's like picking your favorite child. But uh, there is well, a plant. I, I loved cat, cat, <laughs> cat mint. I think it was cat mint that was discovered in Brighton. Yes, that that's a, a wonderful example. That's um, I, I'm I'm not responsible for that. A man named Brian Core, who is the propagator at uh, uh, Little Valley Wholesale Nursery, one of the largest nurseries, uh, he found a hybrid between the common European catnip and a Himalayan catnip that is sterile. And uh, this is particularly good because if you've ever grown some catnips, they kind of spread like crazy from seed. And this one is very, very demure. And it was named for uh, the owner of Little Valley Wholesale Nursery. Trudy is her name. And uh, she is um, uh, uh, getting up there in age. And uh, it was a wonderful to be able to, 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 to honor someone who has, who has really made a huge difference. You were going to name your, your own version, though, of a native plant that uh, you wish got more attention. Yeah, I would say that uh, we have a, a tremendous suite of penstemons uh, that uh, were first bred by a um, lumberjack up in White Salmon, uh, uh, Washington. And he and I were corresponding, and he sent me a packet of seeds. He said, I think these are pretty special. And we grew them, and they were special. They, they're very showy, and they're very adaptable. And from those uh, seed that he sent me, we have named four or five different penstemons. And uh, the one that I'm particularly proud of is Red Rocks. Uh, I uh, uh, g- gave the seed to a local nurseryman who grew it. Uh, Ray Doherty is his name. And he came back to me and says, you really need to put this in the program. And we did. And it has now been grown all over the world. Very quickly, we have about a minute. What role will climate change play in this program? Because presumably you're going to need plants that adapt to different climates. Well, I, I think the main climate that we have to deal with is the fact that we get periodic droughts. And I view Plant Select as being kind of a drought insurance for the industry and for people. Is we get more of these plants, we perform kind of a bait and switch. People are planting more and more of these plants. And the next time a drought comes, if you have a lot of these plants in your garden, they will survive. And there uh, is at least expected to be more in the way of droughts, potentially as climate changes. Thanks for being with us. 
It's, it's a real pleasure. Panayoti Kalaidis, also known as PK, is senior curator at the Denver Botanic Gardens. He contributed to this new book, Pretty Tough Plants, 135 Resilient, Water-Smart Choices for a Beautiful Garden. And you can see some of the recommendations from PK and others, along with vivid photos of these, as he says, showy plants at cprnews.org. So dry weather is one thing Coloradans have to contend with. So is hail. In fact, the eye of the most expensive hailstorm in Colorado history hit the Denver suburb of Wheat Ridge just a couple of months ago. More than half the homes there needed new roofs. CPR's Allison Sherry reports that for a small city government, it has brought challenges. I'm standing on Depew Street between 29th Avenue and 30th Avenue in Wheat Ridge. This is one of the hardest hit areas in the May 8th hailstorm. The neighbors on the street who were home at the time say it felt like a bomb was going off when the pellets started falling. It was like meteors shooting out and it broke our windows and our screens and there were four inch holes I guess in our roof so that's huge considering like that was flying at us. That's Melissa Okada who lives on Depew Street. She has a permit sign hanging in her front door and a brand new slate gray roof. Nearly every house on the street has a new roof, and Okada says it hasn't been an easy process. I think the lack of communication between not only the city and the residents, but the like, but also the contractors and the people that they're working for has been, that's the most frustrating part. About a mile away, Patrick Goff, the Wheat Ridge City Manager, sits in the municipal building and frets about Melissa Okada's frustrations. He doesn't have enough staff to quickly approve all the permit applications piling up for new roofs. Goff knew he was in for a headache when a Florida contractor called him before the storm was even over. The man was trying to figure out what paperwork he'd need to work in Wheat Ridge. In the two months since then, the city hasn't had the manpower it needs. I reached out to many other cities in the area to see if they had any, especially the larger cities, if they had any extra staff they could loan us for for a while. And and they all said we're just as busy, and not just from the hailstorm, but just from the general construction. Goff has been able to hire some temporary help, but he says the city still has 800 permits waiting to be processed online every day. He's hoping to hire even more people to help but it seems like we get caught up and the next day there's another 150 permits online waiting to be issued. To see what this looks like on the actual roofs of Wheat Ridge, I took a drive with Brian Tardiff. He's the guy in Wheat Ridge in charge of buildings and inspections. I'm not sure. Do you know who has 3294 Pearson Street? I don't have a computer. Tardiff says his inspectors are working to their bones. This last week, they actually did 38 roofs a day. That's about five roofs an hour. The city actually had to call an ambulance for one inspector who was working so hard, he fell ill. They're working under overload. The whole, whole department from the permit desk right out. You know, the more permits we issue, the more inspections we have. Wheat Ridge expects to permit about 7,000 new roofs because of that May storm. Tardiff's inspectors are required to take a look midway through construction to make sure the roofers are doing a proper job. The city acknowledges those checks are taking longer than normal. The delay has been frustrating for homeowners and contractors who want to keep the work moving as fast as possible. But Tardiff says the process is meant to help people. And in fact, at one stop on a roof in the middle of construction, Tardiff discovered a mistake. Yeah, you'll have to make sure you you fix that, okay? The guys agreed to fix the problem, and we were back on our way. 
This whole process frustrated homeowner Melissa Okada when she was getting her new roof. She says no one took the time to tell her what to expect. It was frustrating, to be honest with you, because working with the contractors has been difficult because we know that they're overworked, but they're not very responsive. And then also the city has sort of been difficult to work with, too, because we didn't realize you have to have inspection after inspection after inspection. And it's only by word of mouth that we found out the reason why they're doing that is actually to protect us. Back at City Hall, Goff acknowledges he's lost sleep thinking about how to best serve his taxpayers in a small city with a relatively small number of employees who weren't exactly prepared to deal with this kind of crisis. It's a struggle to figure out how much more can we do? Should we be doing? Um, Should we be doing more than 170 inspections a day? Should we be issuing more than, you know, 150 permits a day? Um, So it, it is a struggle for a small community. I don't have a bench of employees. And so Goff and other city leaders are beseeching residents for patience and calm as they try to get everything nailed down. That is, before the next storm threatens. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Some of the biggest names in dance flock to Vail each summer. The Vail Dance Festival starts Saturday. Damien Wetzel, former lead dancer with the New York City Ballet, has led the festival for more than a decade. But he'll step down after next year's event. He's been named the new president of Juilliard, the highly prestigious art conservatory. He told CPR's Andrea Dukakis that in the role, he wants to prepare young artists for what he calls the DIY world. In the time, let's say, since I first walked into the Juilliard building, which is 1983, you know, the world that artists emerge out into has changed dramatically. And it's a, it's a function of time. It's a function of commerce. It's a function of a lot of things. But what I've really noticed and been a part of myself over the last years is artists making opportunities and interesting projects for themselves at an increasing rate. And it's everything from new music venues that spring up that are more geared to individuals individual artists than to, let's say, ensembles, to the the, coalitions that are being created between artists, whether they're of the same variety, let's say a group of dancers, which isn't that uh, revolutionary. I did that myself for years. But it's more like there's collectives that are being made. And that speaks to something that is only going to increase. And it's something that is reflected in their uh, their environment that they're, they're coming out into. What about technology? Has it changed how young artists do their work? Well, I think, you know, the the technological tools that have emerged have been extremely uh, beneficial to to individual artists and and lots of different ways as far as being able to be seen more, being able to craft your own uh, messaging, and also just simply the availability for artists to see other artists. When I think about, you know, my childhood growing up, wanting to be a dancer, you know, I'd wait for that time that we'd all somehow pass around that when there would be something on television to see, you know, or, you know, trying in the in the VHS age to get a hold of that particular tape of the performance that somebody happened to tape three years before. I mean, we're in just a obviously a radically different world now where it's all at our fingertips and increasingly so as things get digitized from the past. So the, the, the opportunity for learning and for sharing with each other has never been greater in history. You won't start your new job until July of next year, so you'll stay through the Vail Dance Festival's 30th anniversary. You've been there for more than a decade. What have you learned at the festival that you can bring to Juilliard? 
Well, I would say that, you know, the, the festival has been a, just a tremendous experience of learning in terms of how to bring artists together in different ways and connect them with the community in Colorado itself and with communities further away, with the audience that's there, all different ways that we can kind of create common cause through art. One of the biggest challenges Juilliard faces and other schools is the rising cost of tuition and room and board. And while the price tag keeps getting bigger, there are more and more universities competing to train young artists. What are your thoughts on the price tag for higher education? Well, this is, you know, this is deep water, and I'm wading into it as I am privileged to have a year to prepare, essentially, before I'm the official president at Juilliard in July of 2018. So it's a little premature for me to start talking too in detail about it. But I will say that I am committed to the idea of providing this level of extraordinary education in the arts to everybody. And what that means is working towards the best possible scenario. But I will say that, you know, the it's a reflection of the world in the same way I talked about the do-it-yourself quality of many of the opportunities that young artists are making for themselves. It's going to be reflected a little bit in how we look for their future. And in the same way, we have to be looking for, you know, what kind of student debt they are left with and what that means for their futures as well. How do you see yourself staying involved with the festival if not in this leadership role? You'll step down, as you said, next summer. Well, so again, a little bit too soon. We're just in early stages. Luckily, we have this long, long lead up here. But, you know, I've been uh, very uh, involved in every aspect of the festival since I took uh, the directorship uh, over a decade ago now. Uh, and there's room probably for me to stay more focused on the artistic matters and see what, what other kind of structures there might be. But it's, uh, it's too early to really talk about it in any substance. Every year you pair artists who haven't worked together before or who may seem like unlikely pairings. This summer, Memphis Juker Lil Buck will choreograph for the famed modern dance troupe Martha Graham Dance Company. And there's a night devoted to work by female choreographers. What else would you like to do in Vail before you leave? There's a lot of things I want to do. I mean, every year I try and bring at least, you know, one company who haven't been there before. I try and do all these different pairings of various kinds. Uh, and then the greatest kind of pleasure in this is in many cases, these things go on to have another life somewhere else. I remember I paired the great clown and actor Bill Irwin, uh, famous to many people, you know, from actually from Sesame Street as Mr. Noodle, but actually a Tony Award winning best actor for for his work on the stage in New York. Uh, and Bill, I brought him out to, to the festival. I'd done a lot of work with him in various venues. Uh, and I thought, what are we going to do here? You know, we can have Bill do his thing. Uh, but he and I spoke about the idea of pairing him with a, an extraordinary bad ballerina who he had seen on the stage and asked me about Tyler Peck. And Tyler was actually my last partner at New York City Ballet, the last person I ever danced with and someone I uh, mentor and always want to give interesting opportunities to. And I thought, well, what is going to happen here when a ballerina meets a clown? Uh, and they created a very interesting piece called Time It Was. And that piece went on, premiered in Vail. It went on to be danced in New York and at Kennedy Center. And it's going to be done in L.A. this summer. And we'll bring it back to the festival on one of the programs when Bill comes back this year. But it's, uh, it's things like that that, you know, when you say, what more do you want to do? I'm like, wow, I don't know, more like that. <laughs> that was fun and interesting, and it went on to a big life. You have some local companies like Wonderbound and the Colorado Ballet. Do you see room for more Colorado companies in the future? 
I absolutely treasure the idea of you know, collaborating with local companies and local lo local period. I think is is you know it's the that's the crucible of how things you know how things happen. Uh, so I'm thrilled to welcome Colorado back, Valley back again. I think it's the third time at least. Uh, and Wonderbound will be with us for the first time, which is wonderful. I mean, I think there's, you know, to be, answer your question directly, yes, there's always room. We always try and find ways to uh, incorporate what we can. Uh, this year is really quite special that we have both. That's really great. Uh, I love that because uh, we do have a, a limited time in the festival, so we try and make the most of every time and make sure that uh, – you know, the idea for me is that you have to come to everything. You know, there's just every night it changes. There's always something more to see. It's never, you know, like something's going to go three times in a row. It's not like that uh, at our festival. Every moment counts uh, in a creative sense. Damien, thanks so much. Really my pleasure talking with you. Damien Wetzel, speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. He directs the Vail International Dance Festival and the Aspen Institute Arts Program. The festival starts Saturday. Wetzel will become the head of Juilliard, but not right away. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. <laughs>